It's not early. It's like lunchtime. So I mean, it's not it's not like an 8 a.m. service. Like, come on. All right. The title of the message is the power of His presence, and um, Acts 19 is where we are. And uh, let me open up in prayer. I'll give the backdrop of why we're here, why we're talking about this stuff, um, and then kind of get an idea of where we're headed. And uh, there's some uh, fill-in-the-blanks in your bulletin that hopefully will help you follow along as well. Alright, but let's pray for the morning. So God, we ask that you bless our morning. We ask that uh, you'd speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we know that uh, you are here among us. We thank you that you are. Um, we ask uh, that you would just move in our hearts and in our minds. That you give us an ability to focus on you. That you would uh, own this time. That we wouldn't get caught up maybe with the uh, news we've had throughout the weeks or difficulties we've had. But Father, may we just devote this time fully to you. Help us to be uh, just fully focused on what you have to say to us. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you be able to speak through uh, me and that I would not attain your message in some way. Um, that I would not get in the way of what you're trying to do. Father, help us not to do that, Lord. So God, we just want to give you this time. We ask you to have it. And God, I just pray that we would just uh, go out of here, um, not just gaining intellectual knowledge, Lord, but I pray that we'd be equipped to live differently. And we just ask that you just uh, bless Sunday school with the kids and bless the nursery, Lord. Give everybody the patience they need, Lord, with the kids. And we ask that you would just bless those seeds that are being planted. I thank you for the work that you're doing here. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So before uh, we get started here with uh, Acts 19, um, can you guys hear me? It's good, right? Okay. So before we get started with Acts 19, um, let me back up a little bit with something that I thought was pretty neat that happened this past week. Um, And it actually starts maybe about a month and a half ago, a month and a half ago. Uh, a month and a half ago, I uh, had a uh, faculty member um, at school where I teach come up to me and say, hey, would you be interested in teaching a particular course? Now, I teach um, a couple of courses right now during the summer, uh, one being summer school, so you get the characters in summer school, which is always interesting. And actually, it's kind of a lot of fun um, because, uh, you know, maybe they didn't pay attention during the year, but now there's a small group of them and the dynamics are different and we can kind of talk and share more. It's, it's nice. Um, then there's another uh, summer program that I teach for incoming freshmen uh, that may want to brush up and fine-tune their math skills, so we do that. And then I had a faculty member come up to me about a month and a half ago about uh, this other opportunity. He said, would you be interested in, uh, in teaching another class? And I'm like, ah, it's like, you know, I got these two already happening. I was like, you know, and then, you know, as you know, like, uh, you know, uh, pastor at the church, you know, where I am, and, you know, I got the fam. I was like, ah, I don't know. He's like, well, it won't be a lot. It'll just be a few days. I'm like, all right. I was like, uh, you know, what do you want me to do? Like, what is it? Um, and he said, uh, to teach religion. And I was like, oh. So, <laughs> oh. So now my ears perk right up, you know. And, and, where, and where I teach at, I'm the math teacher there. So I don't really, I don't get to touch on religion. And um, it's a Catholic school. So they never ask me to teach religion. <laughs> um, that doesn't happen very often, ever. So, well, it won't pay me to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so he asked me, and uh, he says, yeah, would you mind teaching religion? And I'm like, uh, I, I look at him with a smile. I said, are you serious? And uh, he said, yeah. I said, you, I said, well, I mean, you obviously know that I'm not Catholic, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about um, saints, and I'm not going to really talk about Catholic doctrine. And so, if you're asking me to do that, I'm not going to talk about those things. I'm going to talk about other things that have to do with the Bible um, and that are kind of relevant to their life now and try and tie some of that stuff back together to Christ. And uh, he's like, I mean, he goes, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. I said, okay. I said, yes, then put me down, put me down. So what we did at church 
Last Sunday, we talked about right, Acts 19 and Ephesus. And we talked about 12 people uh, getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? We talked about that last week. Remember that? We talked about the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, how um, Paul asked the question, hey, were you guys baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they're like, uh, what is that? And then he laid hands on them and then baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they started talking in other languages and they started prophesying. Um, and uh, it was a pretty amazing thing. And so we talked about a little bit more about the Holy Spirit, who He is, how He's important in the life of a believer, and how He comes and lives in our hearts when we commit ourselves to Christ. So all that happened last Sunday. So I started teaching this religion class on Monday. And so uh, I was like, ah, you know, what, do I, what are we going to talk about here? I'm just so excited. I only have a few days. I don't want to blast them and overwhelm them either. They're 8th graders. Uh, so, ah, what do we talk about? So I'm like praying through it and trying to figure it out. And there's a particular um, website that I like that usually is youth-focused. And I use it a lot of times in my classes to maybe start off a class or to bring up a topic because it's not real heavy-duty. It does bring in the Bible, but it's not in such a deep and intellectual way where they might miss it. Um, because their understanding of God in the Bible is like very small. And their attention span is way smaller. So you have to be delicate, but you want to be impactful and you want the Spirit to lead it. So I'm like, I don't know. So I go, um, I'm reading and thinking about things and I'm writing down things. I'm like, ah, you know, and I only got an hour, you know, and I want it to be interactive because you can't just sit there and talk with them. Like, they got to be doing stuff too. So... Um, after doing a bunch of praying and looking around, I look on this particular website, and sure enough, the topic that comes right up that the guy's going to focus on for the next five weeks, like in his study online, is the Holy Spirit. So I'm like, boom, we're going right with that. Now, how do you tell a bunch of eighth graders about the Holy Spirit? Well, that was pretty interesting. But it was awesome. It was awesome. I can tell you that we talked about um, for three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we talked about who the Holy Spirit is, um, how uh, He works and how He's important, and then how He showed up on the scene and what it would look like if somebody lived in the Holy Spirit. It was incredible. And um, the really neat thing was that, so it, uh, uh, it was me, and then we had like, Mm, some sophomores and juniors that were like chaperones with the kids and then you have about 25 8th graders so I could just present an idea and talk about something um, and then uh, I'd have some stuff worked out for the chaperones or kind of like little leaders of the kids uh, to, divide, to, to divide up into groups and they would work with them so I have these kids I normally have in class on a regular basis, I have the 8th grade, graders that will be coming in, and then we also have the chaperones from the school that they're coming from. So I have this excellent, awesome audience that are not, quote-unquote, born-again Christians or born-again believers. I haven't even heard of the term. And we're dropping in with the Holy Spirit. And I got paid to do it! They paid me money to do that. It was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. I was just, I, I was like so blessed and so overwhelmed. And um, one, one of the kids, uh, one of the kids um, from actually the school I teach at was one of the chaperones. Uh, we got talking like the last day. I said, so, you know, how's this working out for you? Is this okay? Like, you know, is it making sense? He goes, this has been incredible. He goes, uh, I, I've been thinking about this stuff all week long. He said, uh, I, I'm learning things I've never even learned or heard of before. He said, uh, that thing you said the other day with the game controller, he said, that was amazing. I told this story about like the game controller and, and about how a game controller is just, if you have a game controller, the nicest possible one, whatever it is, it does everything, every system, whatever. Let's say you have it, and let's say you give it to a kid in Brazil in the Amazon rainforest. It has absolutely no value to them. I mean, they couldn't even really get on the internet because they didn't even have it. They're trying to sell it. Like, it's got no value. It was intended and designed and purposed to be made to play games and made to play games in particular ways at a particular level. 
And so I used that scenario to talk to them about how they were made by a God, for a God, with a purpose. Otherwise, they're just an expensive game controller sitting around walking around the hallways. And so the kid, uh, and that was just like some of the stuff we talked about. And so the kid, he goes, that was amazing. He said, is that from you? And I said, ah. I said, I guess. I said, that's, I think that's God, like, you know, working with it. He goes, yeah, but it's different. He said, are you a priest or something? And uh, I said, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, Father Murphy. <laughs> Father Murphy, yeah. And uh, I try not to lead off with, like, the pastor thing too much with the kids because I don't want to set some sort of precedent up where they feel like they can't talk and we can't have conversations and stuff. So, so I was like, actually, yeah. I said, uh, you know, I'm a pastor at a church in Naugatuck and we're talking a lot about this stuff right now. And I said, I love talking about stuff. He said, man, that was really good. And that was just, you know, one of the kids. It was just amazing that God allowed me to get in there to the Catholic school and they paid me to do it. You know, to talk about it. It was great. It was great. Hey. Infiltrate and infect. Infiltrate and infect. That's what we're called to do. Got to bring the word, right? Got to bring the word. The power of His presence. We're going to continue. Acts 19. So we did verses 1 through 7 last week. Um, well, I'll get to that later. My mind goes too fast. Okay. Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. We're going to do a lot of reading, so you want to make sure that you follow along. Um, but we're not going to try and go super long. But I just want to make sure that we get a good idea and context of who... Uh, and what happens in this area of Ephesus um, as we're going to start to read about the book of Ephesians. Because that's the next book we're going to do together. It's the book of Ephesians. And what I thought would be helpful and valuable is that we could go back and look to say, well, where did this letter come from? Like somebody wrote this letter. Why did he write it? Who was he writing to? What happened, you know, before he wrote it? And wouldn't that be important? Wouldn't that... I think we need to know that. We should be in the same sandals and like try and figure this stuff out um, because context, honestly, is really everything. It's going to give us such a better understanding when we actually get into the book of Ephesians. So we actually start the book of Ephesians next week. We get the rest of the background of what happened in this town called Ephesus this week. Um, and then we'll take on from Ephesians from there. So we did verses 1-7 through seven last week. So we pick up in verse 8. And I already summarized before kind of what happened last week. Um, basically, uh, Paul showed up at this town. He saw some people there that he said were disciples. Made him think that they were Jesus followers, Christ followers. And something about them was off though. Like it, it, something was weird. So he's like, eh, did, were you baptized in the Holy Spirit? And then that's when they said, uh, oh, what is that? I didn't never even heard of that. And he's like, ah, that's, that's why things seem off. And so what he did is he baptized them in the Holy Spirit. He also laid hands on them and prayed for them. And like we talked about before, they started speaking in other languages. And they started to uh, prophesy, which basically means uh, speaking uh, with authority from God. And it could be on various topics and various things. They could have been telling things in the future. They could not have been. But prophesying, meaning they're speaking on someone else's authority in some other way that's outside of themselves. And that happened to 12 people. And we also talked about last week how we baptized 12 people last week. So it was kind of a neat thing that we're looking at 12 people again. So verse 8, let's take a look. Paul entered the synagogue. So after this event happened in Ephesus, right, there's no church here currently yet. No church happened. He just came in contact with these people, 12 guys, baptized them. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So this was Paul's method. He kind of, I don't know, I feel like he kind of had an advantage back then. Synagogue and God was like a major part of life back then where... It's maybe not so much now. He could go to the local synagogue and most people would be there because they at least cared about God and what God said and things of God and there'd be a large group there and his way of doing things, he'd head right up in there and he would just start breaking it down as far as that Jesus Christ was the Messiah 
that he died for their sins and he'd just go through giving them the whole gospel. And what he would do is he would take the Old Testament, the Old Testament, and he was grown up in a school, a Pharisaical school of teaching, so he really knew the Old Testament and that's what he would do. He would explain and reason with them. And it said, um, he did that for three months. I'm surprised they let him do it for three months. Why didn't they kick him out? I don't know. It says he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. Hopefully he was also nice about it, right? It's possible to argue persuasively and not be a jerk. It is possible. But some people like use that as an excuse so I can be a jerk because I'm talking about God and so... I need to get them saved. There's like this thing in the Bible called love. And uh, kind of a major thing. Paul says, hey, listen, you can have all the knowledge you want. You can know all the things you want. You can do all the things. He said, but if you don't have love, it's like a symbol. You just... Gonging symbol. It's not helpful to anybody. So he was able to be there for three months, argue persuasively about the kingdom of God. Verse 9. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. That's what they were known as. They weren't known as Christians. They were known as the way. I still think we've got to get t-shirts that say the way on there, like CC Nog or something in front, like the way in the back. We need a cool graphic, though, so somebody come up with that. Since so Paul left them, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So what happened is they would be there for three months. Basically, they became obstinate. They became kind of violent. They didn't want to hear it. So what did Paul do? He pushed and pushed and pushed and shoved it down their throat. No. It's not what he did. He realized, hey, listen, this, this is not being received well. They don't want to hear it. I'm not going to keep pushing. I'm just going to go to a place where I can keep doing it. So it makes you wonder about sometimes when people just keep pushing and shoving things on people's throats. It's like, whoa. I don't know if that's necessarily God's way of doing it. So what Paul did is he left and he took them to a lecture hall of this guy, Tyrannus. Which is basically kind of like a school building. That's where they would meet. In a school building. It says this went on for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So we pause there. As we read through all of this, what we're going to do, and the reason why I have fill in the blanks in your bulletin, is we're going to pull out of our readings four marks of a healthy movement of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pull out four marks of a healthy movement of the Holy Spirit. That's why I have those four fill in the blanks there. And the first one, we just finished up. First one, everyone hears the word. Everyone hears the word. That's a healthy mark of a movement of the Holy Spirit. Because look what happened here. Even though Paul got kicked out of where he was before in verse ten, or verse nine, he went to like the school basically. In verse ten, this went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Everybody heard the word. It infected everybody. Everybody got some. Don't know if everybody liked it. Don't know if everybody agreed with it. Probably not everybody was on board with it. But at least they heard it. That's one thing we definitely want to try and make sure that we do as a church here is, hey, let's at least blast this town. Make sure everybody has heard of the word of the Lord. Everybody has heard of the gospel. Everybody has heard that there is sin, that there is a Savior who has died for us, that has taken our place, that has saved us. And that promises to give us a brand new life, no matter what we may have screwed up in the past. We want to bring that message. Don't know how it's going to get received, but we want to bring that message. So everybody here, so we can say, as a church body... Man, we brought the word everywhere. Everybody knows about it. Even the other neighbors on the street, the other people, they know. So that's one mark. Everybody hears the word. The church is doing a good job. You've got to wonder if a church is just like a little holy huddle that hangs out on Sunday mornings and is nice to each other 
and it doesn't really go anywhere else. Or if it's just in the Christian's home, but it never impacts the neighbors at all in any way. Right? You've got to wonder that. got to wonder. Verse 11. So now that the Word has gone out everywhere, okay? The Word, the Gospel... What God chooses to do in this case, and I believe He still does today, maybe not quite to this degree or look like this, but I think He still does it. God is now going to give proof that the word that's going out is legit, is good, is true. Well, how is God going to prove that? How is He going to show that? Look at this stuff. Verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Crazy, right? This is not like late night TV with, you know, whoever trying to send you something for, you know, your check. I mean, this guy's doing it. Like the real deal, no money attached. He's just showing the power of God because the word has gone out and God has chosen in this case to now show that his word is legitimate, that it is real, that there is power by displaying power. That's why it's like one of the most confusing things in the world to have someone that professes to be a Christian and then have very little victory and very little power in their own life. That's very confusing. Well, you worship this God and you go to this Bible study, but you're always depressed. Or you can't get past such and such. Or you're very unforgiving. Or you have like these fits of anger. It's very confusing to the world that we live in. There should be some evidence of the Holy Spirit, Spirit's power in our lives. Not saying that it all gets taken care of, boom, right then and there, right away, but should be working towards that. Things should be happening. This is just amazing. Handkerchiefs? What? Verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, so Jews could do it too, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. They had these seven sons of some Jewish priest. They were doing this. So they'd see somebody under the oppression of an evil spirit. In the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, you get out of there. That's what these guys were doing. Verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I do know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. He's got to be our God, right? Our God, our Savior, not somebody else's. There is definitely power in the name of Jesus. There just is. We can't do anything about that. That's just a fact. There is. And whenever you feel like you're under the, uh, maybe, oppression of the enemy, or you're going through a difficult time with the enemy, um, mentioning Jesus' name and crying out His name and crying out His word, it is powerful. And it commands the enemy to leave. Cannot stay. That's why we got to know the word. That's why it's important to pray back His word. But for these guys here, it's crazy. I always said, yeah, I know about God, I know about Paul, but you, you're a poser, man. You're just trying to like act like you know about me. And then he just beats him down. So it's crazy. This is how this church is starting. This is very interesting how this church is starting. So you had like, you know, these 12 guys that know about the Holy Spirit, then he lays hands on them, they get the Holy Spirit. Paul starts preaching in a synagogue for three months, then he gets kicked out, so he moves to a schoolhouse basically for two years. And then uh, during this time, you have this craziness happening. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, so in this event, the seven sons of Sceva thing, when this became known, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. 
I bet it was. Verse 18. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in your Bible, you probably have a little footnote, and it says a drachma was a silver coin worth about a day's wages. So 50,000, you know, year's salary right there. These guys are just dumping year's salaries of stuff here. It says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So what happened was people saw these seven sons of Sceva, they realized their sorcery and what they were doing, man, was not all that powerful. There's something more powerful than whatever they were in tune with. Because there's certainly um, demonic spirits and satanic activity that happens. And definitely carries power with it. Absolutely. But it is completely unmatched and unparalleled to the power of God. And when, they be, and when they came face to face with it, they're like, whoa, this is far beyond us. And they confessed their evil deeds. They dumped all of their life's earnings, everything they had, the only way they knew to make a living, and they just burned it on the spot. Radical. Radical. So what's one mark of a healthy church, right? One mark, as everybody hears the word, here's the second mark. There's radical repentance. In a healthy church, there's radical repentance. This is radical repentance from these guys. These guys are saying, listen, I've come in contact with the power of the Most High God. I'm giving up my former way of living. And I'm following the one true God. And when the rubber hits the road for them, it's with their living. Doesn't happen with everybody. Sometimes people become uh, Christian, they, be, they get saved. Whatever their living is, they do for a living. However, they make money, they can't continue that anymore. It's in direct opposition to what God has for them and what He wants them to do. It's the case for some people, not the case for all people. For these people was the case. So now the rubber hits the road for these people. And it's like, well, I do want to get into heaven. I do realize there's a power higher than me, but why well, let him invade my checkbook? And why well, let him invade my checkbook in a way that hurts? In a way that's going to cost me? That's when the rubber hits the road. So for these guys... They stepped up to the plate. They did it. They had enough courage to do it. And that's a sign of a healthy church, right? It's a sign of a healthy mark of the Holy Spirit moving. So verse 21, After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I've been there, he said, I must also visit Rome. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy, and Erastus to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So let's see what happens next. This is going to be our third mark. It says, about that time, so about the time all this good stuff is happening. What's on the heels of good stuff all the time? Difficult stuff. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Spiritual warfare. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. So you have a silversmith, and what he did, his job was basically to bring in a bunch of business making idols for this god Artemis. So Ephesus, this town... A big chunk of their money, a major um, proponent of their economy, was producing false idols of this god Artemis. This is how they'd make a lot of money. God is going to mess that up. Verse 25. He called them together. So he calls all the craftsmen together. Along with the workmen and related trades. And he said, men... 
you know we receive a good income from this business, and you've seen here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Don't you love that? When doesn't a smile kind of come across your face when you read that? He's convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and even in the whole area of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So I'm sure they really care about their God now. I'm sure they're not really more focused on their wallets. I'm sure. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. So they had like these great theaters, and uh, you know you've seen them uh, before these um, uh, great stadiums and things. And that's a lot of times they do trials, or they do like the gladiator thing, you know. But they'd have like these great huge theaters there. So they all rush into there. That's why they say theater. Verse thirty. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. They're like, "No, Paul, you can't go. This is going to get ugly." Verse 31, even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. It was just total chaos. They just saw a mob happening, like, whoa, this is like crazy, let's just go check it out. Verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, And some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So a Jewish man tries to come forward and tries to plead his case and tries to probably basically say he's not associated with Paul and what these guys are doing. They don't even want to hear it. They're like, you're kind of related to this sect. And they just start shouting, great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. It's just chaos. So what happens? The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Nonsense. Verse 36. Therefore... Since these facts, yeah, okay, are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed uh, temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro councils. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. So city clerk basically says, hey, listen guys, we've got to like, make this thing be legal and legit. Otherwise, we're going to have a big time problem on our hands. And nobody really wanted to be legal or legit about it. And so they headed out. So here's a third mark of a healthy move of the Holy Spirit in a church. Strong opposition. Strong opposition. A, a good mark, a healthy mark of the Holy Spirit moving in a church is not that the whole town will just love you and everybody will get along with you. It's not that everybody will want to sit in on a message and just love it and enjoy it. It's not that everybody is um, going to get on board with what you are doing or what we are doing. Because at the end of the day, the enemy, Satan, does not want to have territory be lost. And he's not going to lay down or roll over while we take territory back. Not going to happen. Opposition is coming. 
Opposition will come to us as a church. Opposition will come to you as an individual. It will hit your family. It will hit your kids. It will hit your friends. It will hit your spouses. Question is, where are we going to fall on that? How prepared are we for that? Because it's not really a matter of if storms are going to happen in our life. It's, it's more of a matter of when. When is the next storm coming? And how ready am I for it? How intimately am I with my Savior? Where are those brothers and sisters that I can text and call and email and lean on? Maybe I didn't do it last time, but I got to do it this time. So strong opposition. And I know many times, the reaction to when we're being faithful to God, and it's just, it's, you can feel the strong opposition. You, you can feel the struggle. You can feel the pressure. And uh, many times people say, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. I don't understand it. I am giving my life to the Lord. I am being faithful. I'm reading. I'm trying to pray. And things are, it, it is rough right now. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Well, the fact of the matter is, we could be doing everything that is right. Because a judge of our faithfulness, a criteria of our faithfulness, is not a matter of how comfortable we are. That's not the ultimate pinnacle Christianity. How comfortable is it for me? How stress-free is my life? How anxiety-free is my life? That's not the ultimate telltale. It's true that Jesus said he would, give, he would give a surpassing peace to those that know Him and to those that abide in Him. That's true. But you can also have that surpassing, that peace that surpasses all understanding while all hell is breaking loose. That's where the Christian's got to be. That's where we have to be. That's hopefully what's different in the Christian's life. And that's where a sense of empowerment comes from, of the Holy Spirit working. Otherwise, man, we would just be up and down with the good news, bad news of our lives and be tossed around. And who wants to live in that? Especially when God's Word promises that we will be more than conquerors to those that are in Christ Jesus. Why not take a hold of that? So strong opposition, right? So number one, first mark, everyone's going to hear the word. There's radical repentance. There's strong opposition. Last one, and we close up here. A deep love is our fourth one. A deep love. Now if you turn to chapter 20, look at verse 13. We'll read to the end here. So Acts 20, verse 13. Oh, sorry. We'll pick up in 17. Skip a few verses. Pick up in 17. So 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So now there's a church there. He's been there a couple years. He's left. Church has established. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews... That whole Artemis thing. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I can look at this. Refrigerator verse. Man, if you need like a life verse, you're having a hard time finding one, this is a really good one. Or at least you need one to help you get through the week. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This guy is sold out. Sold out. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. 
For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So he's warning these guys, hey listen, you guys are the elders, you're going to be running this church. As soon as I leave, people are going to come in and they're going to try and take advantage of people, burden people, and take advantage, and not do good things. So in verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. It's sad when that happens. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So that bonus question in your bulletin there, three years. He was there about three years in total. Taught for about two years in that schoolhouse and was there for about another year before that. So about three years he was there with Ephesus. That's the longest he's ever been with any town, with any church. He was intimate with them. Verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. He was a preacher and a worker. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And here's our fourth thing, our deep love. Look at this. Look at this scene. Must have been amazing. It says, when he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So you get this scene where, man, he's just invested so much of into his heart, so much of his prayer, so much of his love into these people here. And he knows they're never going to see each other again. And it's just like this farewell goodbye of, not forever, but I guess I'll see you in heaven. You know, and so they're there weeping and um, crying. And that's what happens. When God grabs a hold of a church body and people are invested into each other, there's just a deep love there. It's not, it's unhealthy. If it's fully dependent, maybe on a pastor, a pastoral staff, or on um, maybe the elders or the deacons, and like just things happen there. The goal is, is that the Christians right, would be tied together by their love for each other and one another. And that's what happened in this church. It was a painful goodbye. Painful. I would hope that if anything were to ever happen to our church, whatever, who knows, anything were to ever happen, I would hope that the relationships and that the people here, it would hurt for them to be apart so they'd have to do things to get together with each other. Because there's been a deep love that has happened. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit has done it. You can't just manufacture that. You can't create programs to try and make that happen. You have to welcome the Holy Spirit, tell Him He's welcome, do things and conduct services and um, activities in such a way to where He can have His way. And then He creates those kind of relationships. So when we read Ephesians 1 next week, this was the background. It started with like 12 people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. He tried to preach hard into a particular place and they weren't having it after a few months so he didn't push harder. He moved on to a place that was more welcoming and where people wanted to come. The word was backed up with signs and wonders that God chose to do through Paul with handkerchief. Can you imagine getting a handkerchief and getting healed? Uh. Then there is an intense riot with opposition and then he's got to say goodbye. So what? when he writes a letter to them, what is he going to write in there? What is he going to focus on? What's he going to, they've been through a lot at that little church. So hopefully it will help us 
as we read Ephesians, and we start it next week and say, okay, we kind of know what they've been through. Like, let's, let's see, how is Paul warning them? How is he trying to encourage them? How is he trying to build them up? One closing slide here. What about us? 2.2014. Real quick, just some closing thoughts, and that's it. Last one is here. So, dot, 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 for us, let's make the Word a priority, not just an education. Right? So that the Word right there, everybody knew it. So we try and make the Word a priority here. We study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we get into it. But we don't want to just make it an education section, uh, session because the Bible has warned us that knowledge just puffs up, but love builds up. So we want to be able to be equipped with the Word and then be hopefully guided by the Holy Spirit of how to put the Word into practice. See, that's the trick for the Christian. is to know the Word, but then understand how the Holy Spirit is calling us to maybe aggressively try and persuade people into the kingdom or maybe to move on to a different location and say, okay, maybe not right now. That's all movement and that's all guided by the Holy Spirit. And hopefully we give the Holy Spirit some time to speak to our hearts to show us how to do that. Second thing, let's model a lifestyle of repentance, but live free. The radical repentance we saw, they dumped all their life salary, everything that they had, radical repentance. For us, on church, on Sundays, or wherever, hopefully we're living a lifestyle of repentance. We're messing up all the time. I was talking with Diane a little bit before church today. I was like, you know, the week went okay and the past couple nights and days weren't that great. And she said something super true. She goes, yeah. She goes, you know, I want to put my church face on today, but it doesn't fit. That's the truth. That is the truth. It doesn't always fit. It just doesn't. We're people. We're messing up. We're struggling. We're having a difficult time. And what we're involved in here, there's serious opposition to serious opposition to this church to this church moving and growing and allowing God to have his way but I say but live free so we live a lifestyle of repentance but it doesn't mean we live around being depressed all day to show that we're being repentful we live repentful understanding that our gracious heavenly father sees it he knows we confessed of it and we also know that He forgives us as far as the East is from the West, and we move on. We move on. Because we can't move to the next chapter if we keep rereading the last one. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Three, let's expect opposition, but not wrongly create it. So opposition will be coming, but like, let's not just create a whole bunch of problems and say, oh, we're getting persecuted. Oh, come on. Like, I hate it when people do that. That's like a little Christian pet peeve I have. When people are rude and they're obnoxious and they're hypercritical and super judgmental and they say, oh, we're being persecuted. How about you're just a jerk half the time? How about that? Maybe you know a lot about the Bible. Yes, okay, that's great. Your doctrine's really good, but walking it out, like, what is your deal? Not working. Then four, let's invest into and love each other and not stay isolated. I hope that's a scene of our church many times over and over and over and over again. In small groups on Wednesday nights, in church before we set up, in the women's Bible study, in the men's Bible study, people are weeping and coming together because God is doing a work. And when God is doing a work, there's usually tears involved. Sorry, manly men. There's usually tears involved. It just happens. King David I mean, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. That guy wept all the time. And this dude was a warrior, battling and conquering. When God gets a hold of you, you're like a little 12-year-old schoolgirl weeping. That's what happens. That's what happens. So we went a little bit long. Let's um, stand and we'll close in prayer together. We're going to do some music, but... I don't want to hold you too much longer on uh, your Sunday afternoon. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray that you do a mighty work in our church.
that you do a mighty work in our families, that you do a mighty work in us. Father, I pray that your word would penetrate this community. I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts, that your word would somehow, somewhat penetrate our work environment, wherever we are. That your word, that your word would just penetrate uh, our neighborhoods. Show us how we can do that, Lord. Show us how you're working. And may we fall in line with that. I praise you and thank you for the mighty work that you did in Ephesus. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to do a mighty work here. I ask you, Lord, to do a mighty work in this church body. And honestly, Lord, none of that will happen unless you do mighty works in each of our hearts. So I pray for the hearts here, Father. May hearts be encouraged that need to be encouraged. I pray that hearts would repent that need to repent, Lord, and confess to you. I pray, Father, that we as a church family, we as individuals, would do everything that we could to give voice to, to give priority to the Holy Spirit in our lives. May we be a people that do that. So often, Lord, it just comes down to just spending time with you. Father, help me to help us to give you over that quality time. Help us to figure out a way. We got kids, we got jobs, we got responsibilities. Help us to make a way, Lord, because you're that important. And the work of your Spirit is that important. And I pray that we could use your word to fight back against the lies of the enemy that he tries to plant in our minds. Nothing's going to change. Everything will be the same. It's not going to matter. Father, I pray you give us fresh perspective. Please do a mighty work in our church, we ask you. Do a mighty work in these hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.